Today's scripture reading is on the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Mercy Palisades Church. Uh, We apologize for some of the technical difficulties. Uh, We do need a new laptop for worship media back there. It was uh, freezing halfway through the service. And also that that really loud sound that happens about once every Sunday. So uh, we apologize for that. Hopefully we can get that uh, straightened out by by the next time. Uh, So game night family groups. Family groups is our version of small groups here at New Mercy. Game night family group, which is my family group. We meet on Fridays, by the way. It's a great family group if you're looking to join one. Uh, We had our first session of 2020 a couple Fridays ago. Uh, By the way, I'm standing here so I don't stand in front of the screen and you see my shadow the whole time. Maybe we can put a different slide up. I think that'd be good. Um, Naturally, at this first uh, meeting of the year, we talked about our church theme for 2020, which is deeply rooted, uh, as you guys can see in the slide. Uh, That's one of the other desktop wallpapers that you can download. Uh, And the sharing was at this family group that we had was actually really great. Uh, I think everyone in the room felt like they, they resonated with the theme at, at some pretty deep level. In fact, uh, uh, when people shared, I could sense that they were genuinely convicted about becoming more deeply rooted in God this year. But there was a lingering question that a, a couple people had, and I wanted to start today by, by addressing it. Okay? And the question was very simple. It was basically... Okay, we we love the idea of being more deeply rooted in God. That's a fantastic theme for a church. But how do we go about doing that? And how do we go about doing that? Well, that's a great question. And it is, in fact, what we're going to be spending all of 2020 doing. Okay, this entire year, we're going to spell out for you as clearly as we can how to become more deeply rooted in God. We're not going to talk about it as this nice idea that we all hope to aspire to. No, we're going we're gonna to get really practical in 2020, uh, and we're going to get our hands dirty, and we're going to show you, and we're going to walk you through what getting deeply rooted in God actually looks like. You know, just this past week, uh, as Pastor Bob, and before he went on his vacation, as Pastor Bob and I were planning out our next two sermon series, uh, one of the series that we were planning just didn't feel like we were staying as true to the theme as we could be, okay? Uh, and as we were talking about it, me and Pastor Bob, we just started sharing with, with each other that that's not okay. Uh, and and, we, and we, we said to each other that we don't want to give people in our church some loosely thought-out sermons this year. That, you know, that's a temp- real temptation for pastors because, you know, as we preach at week in and week out, sometimes, you know, we get a little bit tired. But we, we, we said to ourselves, that's not okay. Okay? We, we don't want to give the people in our church some loosely thought-out sermons. Okay? We really want to feed you guys stuff that is not only carefully prepared, but stuff that will genuinely be helpful to you. 
Okay? And you have our promise that we're going to work as hard as we can uh, and as prayerfully as we can at this this year because we really want you to become deeply rooted in God. We don't want this just to be a nice theme. We really genuinely want you to become deeply rooted in God. Now, this current sermon series we're on, this is actually about as pragmatic as we can get, rooted in prayer. This is about as pragmatic as we can get. According to the Bible, the primary way to become deeply rooted in God is through prayer. After you become a Christian, if you do not pray, the fact of the matter is you will never be able to become deeply rooted in God, okay? Prayer is absolutely central to our spiritual growth and to our relationship with God. If you are not praying, you know, and you're walking around thinking that you're growing deep as a Christian, you are deceiving yourself. Now, it's not just any kind of prayer that will deepen your roots in God. So, in Luke 18, Jesus gives this parable about this tax collector, right? And this tax collector, he's praying, and there's a sinner tax collector, uh, not, uh, not the tax collector. He, he gives a parable about, sorry, a, a Pharisee and a tax collector, right? Uh, and, and the Pharisee, these are the words that he prays as he's standing next to a tax collector. He says this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, does that sound like a prayer that will root you deeper into God? No, of course not. It's filled with pride, it's self-centered, and it's judgmental. And it's all about boasting in works righteousness. I've done all this, look at me, right? See, there are plenty of prayers that will only reinforce your greed and your self-centeredness. People who showboat in their prayers, right? People who make prayer into a shopping list, right? People who make prayer only about themselves. Those prayers will not root you more in God, no matter how many times you utter them, and no matter how many hours you work at praying those prayers. So the question is, what kind of prayer is it then that will root us more in God? Well, Jesus tells us exactly that kind of prayer in today's text. Now, you know, I know a bunch of you, when you heard this text being read today, uh, you were like, oh, that's the Lord's Prayer. I know, I know what that is, right? And you just kind of checked out probably, right? But take a second and think about this for a moment. The disciples ask Jesus, right? Jesus Teach us how to pray. Basically, they're asking, how do we pray rightly? And Jesus tells them how. The God of the universe is telling them how to pray rightly. I think he would know what he's talking about. Do you want to know how to pray so that it's working in your life for the purposes of God? Do you want to know how to pray so that it makes a kingdom difference? Do you want to know what kind of prayer will actually root you deeper into God? Well, in today's text, Jesus actually teaches us that prayer. The words we are reading in today's text, they are words that trace back to the very mouth of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself spoke these words, and through these words taught us what the prayer of an effective disciple looks like. And the fact that we find this prayer to be mundane just shows how little we understand it. This prayer is the prayer of all prayers. 
If you can get what Jesus is teaching you through this prayer into your heart and into your prayer habit, it will root you in God like nothing else. So last week, uh, Pastor Bob, uh, he talked about uh, how as Christians, we need to pray without ceasing, right? And, and he described what that looks like, how it's like this ongoing, free-flowing conversation with God throughout the day and throughout your life. And he talked about how intimate that can be, right? Now, when you look at how Jesus teaches us to pray in today's text, it doesn't seem as free-flowing as a prayer Pastor Bob was talking about last week, right? But that's because we don't realize what Jesus is teaching here, what he's doing here. See, Jesus isn't telling the, his disciples to pray these exact words verbatim every time they pray. He's not saying that. No, what he's doing is he's giving them an outline of what a healthy, balanced prayer looks like. Every commentator I read agreed on this, and I read a whole bunch of commentators. He's breaking down into, he's breaking prayer down into its component parts. He's showing his disciples what, uh, what elements are essential in prayer. In essence, he's teaching us the proper grammar for prayer. And here's how it works. See, once you've absorbed this grammar into your prayer life, what you're going to find is that that grammar will enhance your free-flowing conversational prayer with God. See, a lot of people, they think that structure hinders flow. But that's completely not true. Form and discipline and structure, when employed rightly, actually serve to enhance freedom and not hinder it. Okay, for example, take volleyball. You know, when I was in junior high, uh, I remember watching some really good volleyball players uh, at, at church. They would set up the net every Sunday, and they'd play. I'm like, man, you, these guys are amazing. It was really pretty amazing to behold when I was in junior high. They made it look effortless, right? It was like watching water flow, right? They were so skillful. They were so powerful. They were so mushisa, right? That's a Korean word for cool and sexy, right? Now, have you ever seen gym volleyball? quote-unquote gym volleyball, where the people don't know the structure of the game. Have you ever seen that? It's terrible, right? Watching it is worse than getting a root canal. I've never gotten a root canal, but I imagine it being pretty terrible, okay? Well, that's how I played in junior high. And playing like that without structure made volleyball terrible, I didn't feel like I was freely playing like those other volleyball players. I felt enslaved to chaos, and I never got better. I never grew as a volleyball player in junior high. But when I took the time, when I put the time, uh, when I put in the time and uh, training into learning the components of the game, the grammar of the game, like passing, setting, hitting, Right? Serving, position, blocking, footwork, and strategy, right? When I mastered the structure and the grammar of volleyball, it's only then that I found freedom in my game. The same is true for any sport. And the same is true for writing. You know, a lot of us, when we grow up, we learn about grammar, like this grammar is terrible. It's like these rules are trying to enslave us. But in fact, if you master the rules of grammar, you develop an ability to express an infinite number of ideas in very powerful ways. So learning the grammar enhances your freedom. Same is true for most of life, and the same is true for prayer. What you're going to find is that by incorporating the elements of the Lord's Prayer into your free-flowing prayers with God, your prayers are going to become thicker and more robust and more kingdom-centered 
and more free, and I would say more effective. See, there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus says the following words. He says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. You know when Jesus says those words? He says those words right after today's text. After teaching the Lord's Prayer, it's then that Jesus says these words. See, Jesus is not saying, just pray whatever and it will be given. No, He's saying, pray like this, the prayer that I just outlined for you, because it is this kind of prayer that is effective in His kingdom. This is why it's so important to take verses like, you know, ask it and it will be given to you. That's why it's so important to take those verses in context. Alan Culpepper is a New Testament scholar uh, with a PhD from Duke. This is what he says, commenting about this. The assurances that follow the Lord's prayer, right, ask and you will receive, right, assume that those who ask, seek, and knock are asking from their need and for God's will, seeking the kingdom and knocking at the door as a neighbor in the night. We may be anxious about the necessities of life, but Jesus calls us to a higher pursuit. Seek His kingdom uh, and these things shall be yours as well. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Our prayer should be consistent with our seeking. Then, when we pray as Jesus taught us, the assurance that God answers is hardly needed. You know, I know Christians who pray these anemic, self-centered prayers all their lives. And you just never see any growth in their lives. You don't see their prayers bringing more freedom and life and energy and joy. Instead, you see stagnation. See, isn't it interesting? It's when we don't adopt Jesus' teaching on prayer here that our prayers actually become more and more lifeless and burdensome and undifferentiated. But as you'll see, when we do take the time to learn the components of prayer as Jesus teaches them, it's then that our prayers come to be filled with more vitality and purpose and heft and variety. Okay, now let me go through the structure and the components of the Lord's Prayer with you quickly, uh, and then at the end I'll tie it together by showing you how all of this should impact your prayer life. So, Jesus starts by telling us to address God as what? Father. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, there are places where God is depicted as Father. Okay? And historically, there are some Jewish prayers where people refer to God as Father. But typically, they refer to God more as the Father of a nation okay, rather than to an individual. The way Jesus refers to God as Father here is very different. So, Jesus actually originally taught this prayer to his disciples in Aramaic, okay, which was the common language of the Jewish people at the time. Okay? In Aramaic, the word that Jesus uses for father is the word Abba. Okay? And this is a very evocative and a very powerful word because it's a word that's exploding with intimacy and trust. See, Abba is a word that children, okay, both young children and adult children, okay, Abba is the word that these children used when calling out to their fathers. It's actually very similar to the word Appa in Korean, okay, which also means fathers. To this day, I still call my dad Appa, okay, because there's intimacy involved there and familiarity. Now, why does Jesus tell the disciples to start praying 
or start the prayer by addressing God as Abba? Well, he tells them that because he's teaching them that that is the kind of relationship they have with God. So, all, you know, all throughout Jesus' ministry, if you, if you read uh, the Gospels, he refers to God as his own personal father. The level of intimacy when addressing God, uh, this level of intimacy when addressing God was in fact offensive to a lot of people. In John 5, 18, we see this. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Now, when Jesus tells us to address God as Abba, he's saying, this same intimacy that I have with the Father, you also have. We can confidently, we can talk confidently to God as our Father because that's exactly who He is to us. So, you know, in the movie Air Force One, uh, Harrison Ford, he plays the president of the United States, uh, by far the best president in all of cinema and probably reality as well. Um, well, at the beginning of the movie, after he makes this really powerful speech in Moscow, he makes his way back to Air Force One, okay? Now, when he gets back to the plane, how do you think the people address him? When he gets out, boards the plane, obviously they're going to start greeting him. How do you think the people address him? Well, they address him formally, right? They say things like, welcome back, Mr. President, right? That was a great speech, Mr. President, stuff like that. Now, later, when his daughter comes to see him, how do you think she approaches him? Does she say, hello, Mr. President, who is my father? It is so wonderful to see you that you are well. Does she say that? No, if you've seen the movie, that's not what she says. Instead, what she does is she barges into the office, jumps into his lap, and knocks the wind out of him. That image is exactly the kind of relationship we have with God. The confidence that you see and feel when you see the daughter jumping into the president's lap, that's the kind of confidence we can have when we pray to God. Yes, he is God, but he's also at the very same time our Abba, Father. Hebrews 4.16 says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The reason, one of the big reasons we can approach the throne, of, the throne of grace, the throne of God with confidence is because the person sitting on that throne is our Abba Father. When Jesus tells us to call Abba, he's saying we can run into the throne room of God, flailing our arms, and we can jump into his lap because he's our Father. Tim Keller puts it this way. I just love how he puts it. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Now, when you get further into the movie Air Force One, again, it's, it's on like every day, on like TNT. You can catch it anytime, right? When you get further into the movie Air Force One, there's another scene where unfortunately the terrorist, played by Gary Oldman, who does a fantastic job, 
has captured, he's captured the president's family, and he starts talking with the daughter. And he's, he, as he tells her, uh, and, and what he does is he tells her, her, uh, her, the daughter, that her father is a bad man and that they are not much different, the terrorist and, and the father and the president. And she replies back to his face, to the terrorist. She says, you are a monster, and my father is a great man. You're nothing like my father. See, as much as a daughter knows that the president is her father, she is also soberly aware of who her father is, that he is the president, that he is extremely powerful, and that he's, in fact, a great man. This is something we have to remember about our Heavenly Father. When we call him, call him Abba, Father, and we run into his throne room and jump into his arms, right, we're not running into the arms of a squishy teddy bear. We're not. We're running into the arms of the king of the universe. Yes, he is our loving father, but we must never mistake his gentleness and his doting love over us as weakness. There's a Ukrainian artist, uh, Shirzana Sush, and she has these really wonderful illustrations of, of a father and his daughter that I really like, and you see this on Instagram sometimes. There's one, right? Love that picture, right? Uh, next one, right? Another fantastic picture. I mean, this guy, you can leave it up there. This guy is massive, right? At any moment, he could roll over on this little girl and squish her like a bug, okay? But all of that power and heft what he does is he restrains and controls so tenderly to love her, to protect her, and to care for her. I think these images capture very well our relationship with our Father. You can, you can take it down now. When we pray the next part of the prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, we are acknowledging that we understand that our loving Father is also God and that He is indeed King. And we are asking him to bring about a world where his name and his kingdom of love and truth is finally established. See, currently, as we all know, right, God's name is not fully embraced as holy and power, as, as the holy and powerful name that it is, okay? It is not hallowed among the nations, and his kingdom is not fully established. Very easy to see when you look around. When we pray this part of the prayer, we are saying that we long for the day that his name is revered by all, and his kingdom is fully and finally established. Now, I know that kingdom talk can be offensive to the modern ear, okay? But you have to remember this. The kingdom that God is establishing, it is not going to have dominion as we typically understand dominion. No. The dominion that our Abba Father King will have, okay, the prophet Isaiah actually paints for us an image of what that dominion will look like when the kingdom of God is finally established in its fullness. This is from Isaiah 11. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put, his, put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Now, a lot of metaphorical imagery here, okay? What's he trying to do? Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine a wolf lying down with a lamb or a lion eating straw? Can you imagine that? No, you can't. And maybe on Instagram, there's a couple pictures of something you see animals doing stuff like that, right? But back then, it was unthinkable. It was against their nature. And that's the point. What God is saying is that when the kingdom is established, there will be such love and peace that we right now simply cannot imagine it. Just like you cannot imagine a wolf lying with a lamb or a lion eating straw because it doesn't make sense. It's against their nature. Your minds are also incapable of imagining the fullness of God's established kingdom. That's how mind-boggling and great and marvelous and beyond our expectations it's going to be. See, what a, lot, what a lot of us forget is that the reason there is so much brokenness and evil in the world is because we rejected the king. We wanted to be our own kings. Adam and Eve, that's what they basically did in the garden. We want to live our own way. We refused his kingship in our lives. We wanted to run our lives as we see fit. We didn't want God's name to be hallowed or his kingdom to be established in our lives. And that is why we are where we are now. So God's name being hallowed and his kingdom coming and being established in our lives, it's not an oppressive thing. In fact, it's the most liberating thing that can happen in our lives and in this world. God's kingdom being established literally is the reversal of sin and evil in our world. Now, why am I emphasizing this point so much? I'm emphasizing it because this is the part of the prayer that most of us, if you're being honest, want the least. It's a part that we skip over. In fact, I would say it's a part of the prayer that we almost never include in our prayers, His kingdom coming and His will being done, which is the way it's said in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer. He includes, and God's will be done. But Jesus teaches here that we must put that part of the prayer at the front and at the pinnacle of our prayers. This part comes first because for disciples of Jesus, this is to be our priority, our main concern and longing. As disciples, our wills, which are selfish and rarely good, must learn to submit to the will of God, which is always good. And praying this prayer is an essential part of that training. You know, every time I get to this part in my prayers, I have to ask myself, do I really want this kingdom, His kingdom, and will to be established? Do I really want that? And then as I pray out this portion, as I pray for God's will to unfold in this world today, I'll look at world events, I'll pray, God, I want this and this to happen. When I look in the Bible, I feel like this is what you want to happen in the world. And as I do that, my heart is trained again about what it is that my life is supposed to prioritize. Christians pray that the kingdom, this is uh, Stanley Harawas, a great American theologian. He says, Christians pray that the kingdom come because they have become part of that coming. To pray that God's will be done is to pray that our wills be schooled to desire that God's will be done. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus and this kind of prayer is not a priority in your prayers, you are not rooting yourself more in God. If all your prayers have been mostly about you, 
you have been putting your roots deeper into the culture of self, which dominates our world and unfortunately also dominates a lot of our churches. And that, my friends, is not how the people of God's kingdom are called to, to operate. If you pray this part of the prayer, truly pray it, your heart and actions will change. And Eugene Boring, another New Testament scholar, he says this, one cannot pray this prayer without committing one's will and action to fulfilling the will of God in the present. Okay, so we've prayed for God's kingdom and his will to be established. Now Jesus, us, Jesus tells us to pray, give us each day our daily bread. What this part of the prayer teaches us is that God is not just concerned about the future. He's also very much concerned about the here and now and that you, his children, are provided for. And this is a very important balance. See, there are Christians who think praying for yourself is a lowly, immature form of prayer. Yes, praying only for yourself, praying primarily for yourself is immature, like I've been saying. But when it is prayed rightly, and when it's prayed in balance with the rest of the prayer that Jesus teaches, praying for our daily needs actually keep us keeps us grounded in a very important way. See, when we pray to God for our daily bread, it reminds us that we are very much dependent on God for our daily provision, that even our basic needs are, in fact, a gift from God. So praying this part of the prayer humbles us by, remind, by reminding us of our limitations. We are finite creatures whose very survival is dependent on the daily provision of God. Through this prayer, we remember who the source of life is. But through this prayer, it also encourages us because this daily provision, we can come to God for and He will be a faithful provider. Basically, this prayer, this part of the prayer teaches us each day to rely on God. As one commentator writes, we live under his care one day at a time, okay? And this part of the prayer drills that into our hearts. Another thing that this prayer, this part of the prayer does it is, all, is that it also com combats greed in our lives. You know, some people think uh, that when Jesus tells them to ask for our daily bread, that they can ask for anything they want. It's free license, oh, daily bread, that, that's everything, Right? It says, that's not what Jesus is saying. It says daily bread. It doesn't say ask for luxuries. It says ask for what you need to live and survive and do His will. So this part of the prayer keeps our requests in check. So be honest with yourselves, brothers and sisters. Are you praying for needs or are you praying for luxuries? And the word, daily, the word daily reminds us that we are not to be greedy hoarders relying on what we hoard for security, but on God's daily faithfulness and provision in our lives. You know, in the Bible, there's a difference between saving wisely for need-based daily living and stockpiling for greed. Let me say that again. There's a difference between saving wisely for need-based daily living versus stockpiling greedily. And it's hard for us, I, if I'm being honest, it's hard for us to make that distinction in Bergen County. Now, one of the profound consequences of this part of the prayer is that if indeed we let it affect our living, if we ask God, if we ask for and we believe God provides for us, so 
we should be like God and provide for others as well. Okay? Uh, this is M. Eugene Boring again. He says this, the prayer represents Jesus' own solidarity with the poor and is concerned that they have the minimal means of survival. Praying this prayer, the church unites with the hungry and the poor of the world, and hence the prayer constitutes a readiness of those who have bread to share it with those who have not. See, this part of the prayer disciples us by reminding us what God is like, we are to become also, which is regular providers for others who are in need. You know, Stanley Hauerwas, he actually takes it one step further and says, Christians who live in this way and who pray this prayer actually contribute to and usher in a more just and equitable society. He says this, but Jesus is good news to the poor, for he has brought into existence a people who ask for no more than their daily bread. Now, this is not to say that God won't give us an abundance. At times, he does. But when he does, if we are people trained to live by our daily bread, we will be a people who generously give from our overflow. You know, if you look in history, what do you see? If you look carefully at history, what do you see? You see Christians living lives and spearheading charities and movements in history that seek to build a world where everyone can have access to their daily needs. They not only give from their overflow. You know, John Wesley, I've used this example in previous sermons, but he decided one year to live only on a certain amount of money, like 27 pounds. And he said any money he earned besides the 27 pounds, he would give away to the poor. There was some years that he made 1,000 pounds, and he still lived only on 27, 27 pounds and gave the rest of the 1,000 away. So you have Christians in history spearheading movements like that, okay? But not, they don't only do that. They also work toward building economies and more just governments, enacting policies and reforms. So daily needs being met for everyone can become more and more reality. Now, why do they do this? Why are Christians on the forefront of movements like this? Part of the reason is because they realize this prayer is not just about their own daily bread, but about everyone's daily bread. It says, give us each day our daily bread. But they also do this because what they pray for, they know they also must become. We pray for provision from our Father, so we also must become providers because He calls us to be like Him. Now, this is also not to say that we cannot ask for gifts beyond daily provision. God desires to give good gifts. He does, okay? But only when we are anchored in this prayer for daily bread will we ask for those other things rightly, with the right disposition, not demanding, but understanding those gifts for what they are. This prayer for daily bread reminds us of what is important. Okay, just a couple more thoughts, and I'll, I'll tie this all together for you. So Jesus says the next essential component in our prayers is receiving and giving forgiveness. I'm just looking at the clock. Okay, I'm doing okay. Uh, so Jesus says the next essential component in our prayers is receiving and giving forgiveness. He says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, this is actually really interesting if you think about it. So when we ask for daily bread we are asking God to address our physical needs, correct? 
The fact that Jesus puts forgiveness next, he's saying that forgiveness is our corresponding spiritual need. As much as we need bread physically, he's saying we need forgiveness spiritually. Now, that's interesting because there are any number of things that are important for us spiritually, right? Things like worship, things like loving our neighbors, things like God's Word and sharing the gospel. But Jesus is saying central to our spiritual lives is forgiveness. He highlights it in His model prayer. As surely and as desperately as we need bread, we need forgiveness is how one commentator puts it. And because this is a daily prayer, Jesus is saying, if we are to survive and grow spiritually, we need daily forgiveness. That is an absolute spiritual necessity. But unfortunately, this is something that I think many of us don't realize. I mean, how many of us in here take the time to ask for and receive regular forgiveness from God? How many of us? Believe it or not, a lot of your growth and freedom hinges on doing that. Now, you know, if you look at Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, it makes it sound like forgiveness is contingent upon forgiving others. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The teaching of Jesus in the New Testament is that we forgive because we have been forgiven, okay? If our being forgiven was dependent on forgiving others, we'd all be screwed, We'd all be lost. In Matthew 18, Jesus actually teaches in a parable, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, that God's astounding generous forgiveness is the basis for our forgiving others, not the other way around. So, why does Jesus phrase it this way then in the prayer? He phrases it this way because he's challenging us to remember that withholding forgiveness when we have been so generously forgiven by God should be unthinkable for the Christian. Those things, forgiving, being forgiven and forgiving, are so closely tied together for the Christian disciple that being forgiven assumes that you will be forgiving. R.T. France, another New Testament scholar, he says, there is a fundamental insincerity, insincerity asking for forgiveness if we refuse also to forgive. The Father's grace should be mirrored, however inadequately, by His children. Pretty much every commentator I read said basically the same thing. If you are a Christian, you cannot ask or claim God's forgiveness while refusing it to others. For a disciple, asking for forgiveness while not forgiving should be unthinkable. So every time that you get to this component in your prayers you should be stopping dead in your tracks. I have been forgiven by God. And so unforgiveness toward others cannot reside in me. And so what unforgiveness am I holding on to right now? Who do I need to forgive right now? If you call yourself a disciple of Christ, you must absolutely wrestle through that. And if I'm being honest with you, that I, I stop dead in my tracks every single day when I get to that part of my prayer. And sometimes I'm constant, people I'm constantly re-forgiving, but I realize this is what it takes. Finally, the last part of the prayer uh, is for God's protection. Okay, lead us not into temptation. Now, the book of James says that God cannot and does not tempt anyone. Okay, the way it's phrased here uh, in the Lord's Prayer is simply a way of saying, 
Lord, protect me so that I will not fall into temptation or trial that will compromise me and my faith in you. Okay? This is basically teaching us that in our battle against sin and the evil in the world, our strength will not suffice. We must take seriously that evil is real and that it is very strong. We are never as good and as strong as we think we are. Okay? And we must lean on God for His wisdom, guidance, strength, and protection. By praying this prayer, we are confessing our weakness and laying down our pride and taking up the resources that can only come from the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tie all this together for you. When you look at the components of this prayer that Jesus outlines and teaches us, do you see how the structure of this prayer would give our prayers a life-giving balance? Do you guys see that? See, Jesus' prayer is meant to be the north star for our prayers. It is a model prayer for us, and it's meant to keep our prayers accountable. It steers our prayers where our prayers have gone astray. And the more we allow this prayer to do that in our prayers, the more this prayer will form us and impact our thinking and change our hearts and disciple us. You know, Walter Wink, uh, he shares a story that I think really il illustrates this very well. Okay, so 10 years after World War II, uh, there are two peacemakers uh, who met with a group of Polish Christians, right? Uh, and they asked these Polish Christians if they would be willing to meet with a group of German Christians who wanted to ask for forgiveness for what Germany did to them during the war. Well, when the peacemakers posed this question to the group of Polish Christians, at first, there was silence in this room of Polish Christians, dead silence. But then, a vocal Polish man stood up, and this is what he said. He said, what you are asking us is impossible. Each stone of Warsaw is soaked in Polish blood. We cannot forgive these German Christians. Well, before they ended that meeting, they closed with the Lord's Prayer. And when they got to the part, forgive us our sins as we forgive, everyone stopped. And after a long silence, eventually, that very same vocal Polish man, he broke the silence, and he said to the peacemakers, I must say yes to your request. I could no more pray the Our Father. I could no longer call myself a Christian if I refuse to forgive. Humanly speaking, I cannot do it, but God will give us His strength. Well, 18 months later, the group of Polish Christians, they met with the German Christians, and the friendships they forged through that time together have lasted to this day. I just want to make a short comment before I move on to the point of this, right? Isn't this interesting how forgiveness, forgiveness, is, you see how important forgiveness is, right? Forgiveness in this instance stopped a cycle of hate and violence and retribution. You see why God and Jesus emphasizes it so much in prayer. Now, just from that example, do you guys see how that prayer that Jesus taught do you see how that prayer challenged these Polish Christians 
how it inspired them and changed them and reminded them and stretched them and discipled the people praying it? Do you guys see? It did all of that. See, that's what this prayer is supposed to do in your life and in your communities. Each part of this prayer brings you back into alignment. Let me just go through it real quick with you. When you say, Father, you know, some people are like, you know, God doesn't love me. But when you say, Father, you realize, no, He does love me. And then the intimacy is restored, and you're brought back into alignment. Hallowed be your name. You're reminded of God's majesty and power. And so you use that time, and what I do during that time is I use that time to praise God for the things that He's done in this world and in my life. And then you say, your kingdom come. And when, when we say that, we remember, oh, it's not just about me. It's about His kingdom. We remember that we are disciples of God, called to build His kingdom. And so we make that our priority. Give us each day our daily bread. When we get to that part, we're like, yes, kingdom is our priority, but day-to-day matters as well. And we can ask Him for our daily needs. And we remember, oh my goodness, we have to rely on Him for our daily needs. And, we, and that it's not about luxuries, but our daily needs. And it's about our daily bread and fighting for this for other people. And then you get to the part, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And then you remember forgiveness, yes. Giving and receiving is central and part of our daily necessities. As disciples, unforgiveness is unthinkable for the forgiven. And so what I do when I get to that prayer, as I go through a list of people that I still feel unforgiveness toward, and I just say, you know, I'm not the judge, and you, my Lord, who loves me and who loves them, tells me to forgive for good reason. And so I take that, I trust it, and I forgive. And then if, they re- if that name comes back up the next day, I re-forgive until it's fully forgiven. And then the next part, and lead us not into temptation, right? It's God's strength we need for protection to remain faithful and to wage this war against sin and evil. And so I pray about the areas in my life where I'm weak and I know I'm susceptible to temptation. I ask for God's reinforcements. At any one of these points in this prayer, we can get out of alignment. You guys see that, right? What Jesus' prayer does is it brings us back to center and to health. See, all along the way, What this prayer does is it recapitulates our theology and our anthropology. Who God is, that's our theology, and who we are, anthropology, are balanced throughout this prayer. So as you remember the components of this prayer, they steer you into praying prayers more aligned with who God is and with who you are and with His will, which at the end of the day is the the only ultimately good will in the universe. So you want your will aligned with His See how this prayer guides you and constrains you and disciples you? How it confronts you and challenges you and grows you and inspires you and expands you? Do you guys see that? It is this structure and balance that needs to cut through and keep all of your prayers accountable. And as we are trained in this prayer, as our hearts are shaped by this prayer, what happens is we begin to assume this structure in all of our prayers, even though we don't necessarily follow it in all of our prayers. Remember, this prayer is a foundational guide. Once you get it into your system, you don't have to walk through each step necessarily every time. When I play volleyball, I don't think about every single step that I'm supposed to do. It just starts naturally flowing out of me. 
Because it's in you. The spirit of this prayer, its balance is assumed and saturates all of your other prayers. So, you might not say, your kingdom come, or hallowed be your name, okay? But if you've been trained by the Lord's prayer, you remember that's how your heart approaches Him, okay? Getting the Lord's prayer into your system will affect the tone and the boundaries of all your other prayers. In fact, in the Gospels, there's an interesting place where Jesus emphasizes to the disciples, right, to focus on praying that they don't fall into temptation. This is towards the end of His life before He gets crucified. Okay, but see, as they pray that, they assume the rest. You know, like I said at the start of, the, of this message, if you get this structure into your heart, it will make your prayers richer and freer more life-giving, definitely more growth-inducing, far more kingdom-impacting, and conversationally much more interesting. We have the praise team come up. Now, look, you can pray the Lord's Prayer as is, like the Polish Christians did, okay? And that's fine. It is liturgically very powerful. But like I said, Jesus taught it as a guide. We need to learn from it. And if you do, if you do learn from it, it will root you in God and His will in powerful ways. This is my last statement I want to say about this. You know, it's interesting. If you think about the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is actually the most childlike prayer around. You know, a lot of people, we read the Lord's Prayer and it seems like, oh, it's very like, oh, religious language, right? It's very structured and stuff like that. But it's actually the most childlike prayer around. Think about it. In this prayer... We are saying that we believe God, in God's love and goodness so thoroughly that we make His will our priority because we really trust that His will is best. And we ask boldly for all our needs. The prayer doesn't say, maybe you can give this to me. No, it says, give me this day our daily bread like a child. And then we let this prayer train us. That's the behavior of a child who truly trusts his father. Is it not? So don't get this, don't misunderstand this prayer. We have such misconceptions of what this prayer is about. This prayer is the most childlike, the most rooted in God prayer that we can have. And if we learn from it, man, I'm telling you, it can change your life. So what I ask us to do as we go into time of prayer is I'm actually, you know, just for a couple minutes, I'm going to actually go through the Lord's Prayer. Actually, can we put the scripture back up on screen where it has the Lord's Prayer? I'm going to ask you guys to go through the Lord's Prayer just like I outlined Okay, and don't, you don't have to take forever on it. Just like kind of go through a few of them, you know, our Father, and just remember his, you know, Him being your Father, hallowed be your name, praise Him for a few things. And then get through some of those other things and then elaborate on it in your life and see how that prayer steers you. See how that prayer brings things up and pray those things to God. Okay, so let's, as the praise scene plays behind us, let's take a couple moments and let's, let's do that. Let's pray.